All right, so welcome. Uh, Tuesday night, we're gonna start a different little series for summertime. Um, we're gonna start out with a word of prayer and then we will get going on our new series here. Dear Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us and we just pray that you would help us this night. Be with us, may your spirit help us and guide us Give us the direction that we need in our life, Lord. We ask because we have nowhere else to go. And we know that you give the best help and the greatest help and the greatest wisdom. And so we come to you and we ask that you'd open up your word to us this night. And we ask that you would guide us to help us to see things. And give us wisdom in what is said tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are going to talk about... Spiritual battles. Alright, spiritual battles. And warfare is one of those things that has been around forever. And whether you are into warfare or not, and there are people that are into it, but it has been around really since the beginning of mankind, but also before the beginning of mankind. Okay? Man and women have been fighting each other for a long, long time. Almost every society has had wars and battles, sometimes amongst themselves, sometimes with their neighbors, sometimes with people far away. All right? And it continues to this day. We could say, well, we, we are getting so much smarter these days, and we should have peace, 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 and yet... There is no peace. Across the world, you can look and see that there is constant warfare. So it's within mankind, it seems, to battle. And we battle so many different things. But there's something that predates, maybe predates human history. There's, there's something we want to look at in the book of Revelation to start with. And we want to look at this time either in history or in pre-man's history, okay? So Revelation chapter number 12, when we start out our small series on spiritual battles, we're going to look at the beginning of war, okay? Revelation chapter number 12... Verse number 1, we're going to read through verse 9, okay? So we're going to go, we'll each read a couple verses and keep going around, all right? So if you want to start us out with verse 1, that would be great. There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So there is the first war written in history, or maybe not even history, maybe before history. So the question is, when did it happen? 
I thought this book was about the end of times. Revelation, right? Isn't that about the end of times? It is, but in order to describe what will happen in the end of times, you need to look back and decide what went on before and get some background to understand the basis of where we are, all right? So war began with whom? I think that was in verse 7 or 8 or something. Okay, so war began with angels. Not with mankind, which is interesting, okay? Angels and, so this is Michael. We've, we see this new character named Michael and the angels, and they're in heaven with who? The dragon, right? Which is who? If you were unclear, it said it in the verse about three different ways. Verse 9. He's the devil, yes, that old serpent, Satan, the accuser, okay? So the red, the red dragon, the great red dragon, is a picture. Now, I've told uh, many times about mountain ranges. We went out west last year, and you see mountain ranges as you drive, okay? And... As you look at these great mountain ranges, you look across and you say, they're all in a line. And it's sort of true until you drive there. And then when you drive there, you get to one. And you drive way up and over the mountain. And then there's a whole another one next to it and beyond it. And sometimes you drive miles to the next one. Although as you look across the great big wide horizon, it looks like one strip. So the picture is very clear. You're seeing the mountains, right? I mean, it's not unclear. But as you get to the first peak, it may take you miles and miles, maybe even hours of driving to get to the second peak. All right? They're big. They're huge. Prophecy is that way. Oftentimes, when a prophet tells you something, and this is the book of Revelation written by John, okay, he's showing, he's seeing a picture. And that picture is a mountain range. And he's saying, the first mountain range, it looked like this, and then the first, first mountain, and the next mountain was like this, and the next mountain was like this. Exactly what he sees. But as you drive through time, you get to mountain A first, and then you get to mountain B first, and then C is way in the background, or whatever, okay? And that's exactly the way prophecy works. So when you say, when you say, well, the dragon was there, and this is a book about the end times, it is a picture that God is showing of essentially the beginning to the end, all at once. And he's doing it in one picture. There's a woman, she's clothed with the sun, she's about ready to have a baby. There's this big dragon who's about ready to eat the baby as soon as the baby comes out, okay? And when that happens, she gets up and, and is able to fly away, so she, she flees, okay? And then all of a sudden, there's war in heaven. After the dragon does what? There's one more thing that's important. He does something. Beginning a couple verses there, somewhere. When you first talk about the great red dragon. Nope, before that. Talks about his tail. Okay, so a third of the stars of heaven... He grabs them with his tail and drags them down and throws them to where? To earth. Okay? So, we have to look at that and say, is that something literal? Did he actually draw stars out of heaven? 
Or is there something else like a picture? Because is Satan a dragon? No, he has dragon-like qualities, right? That's why he's described as this beast. Now also, as John sees this picture, he's describing from what he knows. The best he can tell you is dragon. Except it has seven heads, okay? And it has crowns on its heads. Horns and all sorts of things. So it's, it's this strange, um, strange beast. And he's describing it to say, well, it has this tail, this huge tail. And it takes and wipes the stars out of heaven. Many people believe that the stars that are taken out of heaven are a third of the angels. Okay? And we call them fallen angels. Okay? They're fallen angels. Or they have another not-so-nice name. Anybody know? Demons. Okay? So demons make up make up the group that stays with the dragon. And why does this make sense? Because if you go on, there's war, right? He shook or tore, did his best to tear apart heaven, and the rest of the angels said, no way, we're fighting this, okay? He took a third of them with him. Now, does he take them with him by force? I don't think so probably by choice, okay? And so these fallen angels aren't taken just by his tail, but they are taken by the force of him saying, come with me, all right? But the picture still gives you the idea of, okay, this happens. These fallen stars that come out of heaven are beings of light. And so is Satan, a being of light. He was created called Son of the Morning, it said he was the most beautiful angel. And pride was what took him out. Okay? What helped him to his, his own pride said, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be God. Okay? And so, with that, he falls inside. Alright? He sins, and there is no redemption as we see it for angels. Not that we know about. A third of them come down, and then there's a war. Michael, we have him a couple of other times mentioned in the Bible, okay? He's what they call an archangel or an archangel, okay? It seems as though he's got an important job in some sort of leadership role. Don't know a lot about it, honestly. There isn't a lot written about it. But we do know that one time Satan... When Moses died, Satan wanted the body of Moses. He was going to do something with it, all right? And Michael went and resisted him, okay? So he is some sort of upper angel. I don't know how it works, except we're going to look a little bit more and draw some conclusions how it works. So if we're going to talk about spiritual battles... We need to understand the enemy, number one. Where are they? Well, a third of the angels, along with Satan, are together. Are a third of the angels a million? Was there a billion of them? I don't know. If there was 10,000 of them, it would be a whole lot of angels, because angels are powerful beings. Okay? They can often do things far exceeding mankind, right? So there is this army out there now. He's taken them, and he's angry because he's been thrust out of heaven, right? That was the, the result of the war was Satan gets thrown out of heaven, okay? You can't be here anymore because you have sinned and you have fallen, and as he comes, he takes them out with him, these third of these angels, all right? So 
it is an interesting start to understand these are not wimpy little beings. We would have no power against them whatsoever if we were to stand alone against them. All right? So, let's go to Ephesians chapter number 6. As we put a little more of this picture together, we get learning about these spiritual battles before we make an application. Ephesians chapter number 6, verse number 12, and verse 13. Ephesians 12, verse, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, verse 12, and verse 13, please. Chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. Yeah, if you do 12, you should do 13. So, here is the battle. This is how we know a little bit more. This is a very vague, we, we got it. There's a leader, okay? We know Satan or the dragon, we'll call him again. And then, then he's got this leadership over this group, all right? But we now know a little more because Paul said, it's not that we fight in this world against just another human. There is a much larger battle going on. The things you personally battle with, the things you feel like, oh, I did that again, or I feel so heavy, so dark. I feel so depressed. I feel, okay, there, there is oftentimes, although we do battle with our own sinful nature, there is oftentimes a much more deep, spiritual battle going on. And who is it against? It says not against flesh and blood. It's not against another human. The big, deep battles are against something else. And what are they against? Well, it gives a list. Alright? A list there. Principalities. Alright? What is that? Okay. Well... A principal in a school is who? The person who is like top dog leader. Top dog, pretty much. In the school, top dog. I know there are other people above him and things like that. But essentially, it's a principal person means they're the top person. Okay? And a principality is another thing where we get the word uh, prince from. So... It is a royal leader, okay? So you have this, these royal leaders. In other words, they are given a title. They're given a title. So somewhere in this army, now we see there are princes, okay? There are levels, now let's keep going. So we've got Satan and we've got princes and then we've got the rest of them so far. Let's keep going and see what else there is. There are powers, okay? So we know that this is just something to say that there, there are ones that are given specific powers. Specific powers. And... Rulers of darkness of this world. Okay. There are rulers of darkness that are specifically assigned to the world. Okay. So, does that mean they have connection to humans? Possibly. Possibly where someone is willing, as a leader, 
to take on some trait of these people and say, I'm going to do your bidding, you give me power in place of it, okay? And there are groups of people in this world who worship satanic beings, okay? There is a church of Satan out there, okay? And they do really terrible things. It's not really what we're talking about, but there is that group of people. So there are people in this world who are willing to give up right for power, right? And you may see that out there today in government positions and leadership positions and places where right and wrong doesn't matter to them. It is just give me power and I will do anything, all right? So we have the rulers of darkness, and then we have, finally, spiritual wickedness in high places. Okay? Spiritual wickedness. And that is in high places. So, in other words, there are beings in this army that are given honor for being wicked. Right? do the wrong thing, they think up evil plans, they go to be malicious against people, to do something evil to them, okay, and they are given honor for that. So you have these armies. Now, are they generals and colonels? I mean, probably not that. But understand, there seems to be a structure to this. It is an army. It is an army with structure. So, you are battling an army whose purpose is to bring darkness, power, and wickedness. Okay? It's a bad place to be. Right? It's a bad place to be. And why is there so much influence out there? Right? Why is there so much influence? Why did God just leave us? Right? Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Well, he didn't exactly just leave us. Okay? If we were to read the next verse there, um, verse number 13, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, may be able to withstand ev in the evil day, having done all to stand. Therefore, having your, your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith also you shall quench the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with your prayer and supplications in the spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. So God has given us armor, something to battle this against. All right? And he does expect that we have those things. And what are those things in our, in our arsenal? Most of them are defensive. Okay? The sword of the spirit, which is your the Bible, right? That gives you power in a way that nothing else gives you power. All right? When Jesus was confronted directly by Satan, he didn't throw him. He didn't punch him. He gave him words out of the Bible. That's what he gave him. And if Jesus knows how to battle directly with Satan, and he says, use this, use these words, he knows the power it has. And that's the, that's the best weapon. All right. Now, faith is one thing that we have. It's a shield of faith. Okay. And, and faith is believing God's promises. So even when it doesn't look like it's possible, you believe that God can do it. Okay? You say, there's no humanly possible way that I can get through this. You believe that God can take care of you. You believe that God can fix the situation. Or you even believe in God so strongly that you say, if he chooses to take me at this time, I know he has me across the realms. It doesn't matter where I am. God can do it. 
Jesus can protect me with this. So that's faith. Righteousness is simply this, is that over time, you build and desire righteousness or doing the right thing as you follow Christ, as you learn more about Christ. You desire it more. You don't desire it right away. Or maybe you say, yeah, I want that. And then, eh, I don't really want to do what it takes to get it. Okay? But as time goes on, you value true things, real things in this life. And righteousness is one of those real things. Right? Because as you're fighting against spiritual wickedness, righteousness is one of those big pieces that has power. Gospel of peace, which is, of course, the story of Christ. Okay, that, that is the goal of why we're here. But then there's something very interesting, which is the belt of truth, which holds it all together, right? It, it gets you there, it holds you there, and that is what you have seen in this generation. We have seen in this generation within the last two years of our life. Even if we thought there was a semblance of truth in places, truth has lost its value. And when you see that when, when evil is pushed harder and harder and harder against our society, truth gets obscured. Truth gets taken out. Truth gets covered up. Truth gets cut out. All right? That's what we see. Time and time and time again. And so the Bible says truth is one of your key ingredients to understand there is one way. God is that way. All right? And if you're going to fight against Satan, you have to keep your mind straight. All right? Now, we understand a little bit more about who these people are. All right? Or who these beings are, I'll use the words. The beings are a better word. Now, where are they? That's the question. Where are they? How can they bother us and I never see them? Are they invisible standing next to me? Or is there something else? All right. So Ephesians, just go back a couple pages to chapter number 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Yeah, go ahead. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by the nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 4. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right. We're going to pick a few things out of that. Here's some important things to know. There is an interesting title given to somebody out there. First talks about you used to be dead. Okay. You were dead before Christ came and made you alive. You know about Christ he comes into your life, you say, come and forgive me. And he, he makes you alive in spiritual ways that you can see things that you could never see before. You were dead to it before, you couldn't even see it. And when you were dead, you used to do all of those things and didn't care, didn't even know that it was wrong. Okay. Now if you do it, you know it's wrong and you feel guilty for it. But before, you never even knew it. But when God made you alive, you started to say, this is wrong. I shouldn't do this. All right? That's where you started, the Spirit started to work in you. But 
when you were with that, it says these were you were amongst the children of disobedience. You were amongst those people. And they followed somebody. And there's somebody in there with a very strange title given to him in this particular area, or this particular verse only. He is called the prince. Sound familiar, right? We just talked about princes, okay? Of the power, also talked about power, right? Of the air. Prince of the power of the air. Who is that? You were to throw out a wild guess. John? Nope. Good guess. But it's not, because you used to follow him. This guy, this prince of the power of the air, was when you were doing wrong, you followed his way. So this is Satan. So he is a prince. We got that, right? We, we, we found those royal leaders, those principles. I didn't write it down there, but principles, a title of that royal leader with power, okay, because we talked about powers, of the air. Does that mean he's floating in the air? I've never seen him. Okay? But you should understand this, that just because we live in this dimension, I'll call it, doesn't mean that all spiritual beings are bound to this dimension. You and I live in something called, and scientists have called it, the space-time continuum. Okay? So in other words, I go up here, and I go, right on the desk. That was probably very loud in the microphone. Right on the desk. And I cannot put my hand through it. Because the desk takes up space, okay, and when I hit that with my hand, which does sting a little bit, okay, when I hit that with my hand, I can't just pass through objects because it takes up space and my hand takes up space, and when they come together, they collide, they don't pass through. You could try it, I'm telling you, <laughs> it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So if you are in a car crash, you don't just go through each other and keep driving. They crash because they cannot take up the same space. And so they crumple with all of that momentum. You are also bound in this world to another thing. Time. I can say I'd like time to stop. But I cannot make it stop. I can say I'm not going to turn older than I am today. But I will. There's no way to stop it except to leave this dimension. So this dimension is the space-time continuum because we are stuck. I can't pass in and out of it. I have no powers to do that. As a human, I'm here until I die and I have to face some other place, some other dimension. That is not true of all other beings in the universe. God is all around us. God is omnipresent. It means he's everywhere, in all places, at all times. The only being in the whole entire universe that is that, okay? He, I can't grab him. I can't touch him because he's not bound by space or time. He created space and time for us as humans to live in. Now, that's humans. It seems as though angels, as another being in this universe somewhere, are not bound by space or time. We see them as Jesus is, let's see, being born. All of a sudden, the heavens open, and the shepherds are out in the fields, and they're singing, and it says there's thousands upon thousands of these angels, a multitude of heavenly hosts, and all of a sudden, they see them. 
They were there before, but they could never see him. They are in a different dimension, and heaven may, seems to be one of those dimensions. But when either given permission to do so or power to do so, they can pass in and between or open up a passageway or open up a visual sight for people to see, give people the understanding. All right? There were missionaries that were in, now if I get this right, I believe he was in the South Seas. Um, I believe he was in the South Seas. Either way, there was a missionary that came in and he was alone in a hut. He and his family. And there were people that came to kill him. Right? From the tribes around. And he had just been there. And when they got there, they went and they looked there and they said, he's guarded by these huge beings all around. We can't do anything about it. Years later, they finally knew this missionary and met, because that night they left. They weren't going to battle whatever army he had outside. And, and this missionary was like, what are you talking about? I never had an army outside of there. But those people were allowed to see in that dimension that there are beings there protecting him that night. Okay? It's happened at other times in the Bible where other people, uh, I believe it was a servant that was allowed of Elisha, I believe. Elisha said, look around, we're all surrounded by the armies of God. And all around the hills there's armies of angels. Okay, So there are things happening in other places... And I don't mean other like I can drive there and get there or fly there and get there or anything like that, but in other dimensions outside of our dimension. And those things affect us in this dimension. The angels can come when Jesus dies and the tomb is gone. The angels, or the tomb is empty. The angel comes and rolls a rock away. He talks to the women at the at the grave site and says he's not here, he's risen. They're passing in and out of that dimension. Alright? So, don't think that there's a limit like we have the same limit on, on these beings. So, what we call it, because it's we have nothing else to call it, is air. So, if he's the prince of the power of the air, there seems to be a dimension amongst the earth that we label the air or that, that God labeled the air okay, that Satan is the prince of now he also said he is the prince of this world so the air seems to be some sort of dimension directly linked with our world and yet we can't get there we could be influenced by it and they could be all around us okay, but we can't get there now, just because Satan is the prince of that doesn't mean that God's angels, the good ones, can't go there. They can go there. They can battle. They can pass in and out. And it appears as though Satan has a limitation as far as the heavenly dimensions of what he can do there. All right? Where he can go and what he can do, he has to have permission to do so. Found in whole other books, Book of Job and other things like that, where you put together these little pictures and pieces and say, this is what we're battling against, is this army of beings that mean, they're angry, first of all, cast out of heaven, didn't do the right thing, angry and would like to take the human race down. Why are they angry? Could it be jealousy? Think about this. It could be that they were never given a chance at redemption, but the human race was. By the angels in heaven, it says they came to look at these things because it was a mystery to them. Why would God die for this miserable little race of animals that can do nothing? 
I mean, really, what good are they? They're not powerful. They can't go in amongst dimensions. They're stuck in this little earth here. They can only do so much. Why? And, and they've turned against God. Why would God come down and die for them? And not for the most beautiful angel? Well, I don't know that answer. Although I know in God's character, He loves and He is righteous. In other words, He does what is right. It's not required that He died for any of them. It's not required that He give them a second chance. It's required that you are righteous to be in heaven. Right? And the only way we were ever going to be righteous was to have his son die for us in our place and say, my righteousness will cover their sin. It's the only way. And he did that for us. And maybe that is part of the reason why there's such a hatred. Okay? I don't know that. There are pieces I'm putting together, okay? And we'll know more of the story in the end. But I do know God died for us, and I do know these once heavenly beings are now in battle formation looking to take us out as a human race, as churches, as countries, as families, as individuals, any way they can. Right? They will do anything they can to take us down and make us less powerful by God's standard, spiritually powerful. If they can drag us down and keep us down and keep us depressed, keep us out of doing God's will in our life, then they have accomplished their goal because God's goals aren't getting moved through us. So, all that they can do to get back at God. Everything they do to battle to get back at God. Right? So, here it is. Here we are. And it is also interesting that it said that in that second book of, or second chapter of Ephesians, it talked about God who raised us up. In past times we were like that. But God who is rich in mercy with great love... Whereas he had loved us, even when we were dead, he quickened us together. He raised us up together. So it is not just that you are alone or I am alone in this world. He raised us up as his children to actually become an army. This is why helmets of salvation and swords and shields and breastplates of righteousness, they're army terms. They're battle terms because he says, we are building an army. You are part of that army. All right? So in order to do that, to be there, there is a couple of different things that we need to understand about the army of God, the army of the Lord. First of all, he says he put us, raised us up together. Together is important. And we have the things, truth and righteousness, faith and the gospel. These are what we're here for. Okay? We will have strength when we are together. We will have weakness when we are apart. And thus the Bible says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together, because it brings strength when you are together with other Christians. It brings strength when you learn together, when you work together, when you battle together against the things out in the world. Okay, It brings strength. It brings strength and it brings unity all right, and let's go to Philippians as we look at that message of unity. Philippians chapter 2, 
This is what God wants us to be. Now, this is a unique thing for an army, but we'll talk about a little bit and let you know why. Verse uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, 3, and 4. If you guys would read that, please. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Okay? So here is the call for our army. There are two major things we need in our army. Okay? Number one thing, our army's strength lies in love. And you could say, well, that is not a traditional army, right? Most traditional armies, their strength lies in numbers, their strength lies in power, in machinery, in weapons, in those things. But remember our weapons. They are the shield of faith, they are the sword of the spirit, they are the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. They are all based in the love of God. And so if you understand God, if you understand our leader then you will say, you have to have love in our army to go ahead. And if you lose sight of that love, you lose sight of what we are doing as an army. Okay? So love is important, and it brings unity. Okay? So it says, do it all with, with one accord. Okay? Do it all with like mind, all together. So that is saying, you are here as an army. You need to have focus. And any good sports coach or uh, whether you have a, a martial arts sensei or somebody will teach you about really focusing. Because if your mind is all over the place, you don't win. Right? You don't even do well. You're just sort of there doing the exercise. But if you are going to focus on something, you are going to win. All right? So love is one thing. And then one other thing he talks about is this. And he says it in two or three different ways. But essentially, you... Esteem others better than yourself. Esteem others better than you. What does that mean? To esteem someone highly, what does that mean? To build somebody up. To build somebody up. Okay, you believe highly in them. You are going to treat them well, right? These are great people. And if you believe highly in them and you're going to treat them, who, how? Better than you. So it is a selfless army. So you have these two things. Now, selfless armies are not always uncommon. Some of the best armies in the world were selfless armies. There was a, and I don't remember who, I believe it was, there was a Chinese battle, I think against China and Japan, and the Japanese people had many less people in their battle. And the, the Chinese people came and said, we're going to wipe them out. I mean, look at the numbers we have, way more than them. And they approached the battlefront, and nearby, the, or right at that battlefront, the Japanese leader sent 30 people out to the front. 30 soldiers walked out to the front, slit their own throats, and died in front. Because he told them to do it. 
said, if their men are that loyal that they will go and do that to the death at the command, we will never beat them. Doesn't matter how many people we have. They will fight until the very, very last man dies. And we will lose a great deal in doing this and may not win for that. All right? Because if you fight together and you have loyalty to one another, okay, and to your leader, which if we have loyalty to God and to one another, there is a power in our army that is undefeated. You cannot defeat it. But we aren't always good at that. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. Now that we've gone through all these sort of things, my goal was to bring you up to one technique. We're going to continue the next few weeks, next couple of weeks, we're going to go over a couple of different techniques. And they're very interesting how they're used, okay? But one of the techniques in battle, and this has been used for centuries and centuries, all right? It is interesting because as... I was learning about this and thinking about this. I thought this is totally relevant for today. Think of us as an army, okay? Think of us as that group. And we are going to have two different groups. We'll go red and we'll go green. Red will give to Satan and his army. Green will say is the good army. All right. Now, this battle technique has been used forever. And you may not be a battle tactician, and I don't really care if you are, but the key is the purpose behind it. What matters is this. There's many different ways to do it. But essentially what happens is if they want to win, their goal is to do something very interesting. They might put, this could be any armies, by the way, and has been many armies, they might put their strongest force here. All right? Or they might stack up another force behind. You say, well, what good is that? What happens is as they go, they come in here and they work to, to fight this, this place from two sides. So these guys move here and they begin to fight one little tiny group of soldiers from two sides. And if they can beat this one little tiny group of soldiers... Then what do they do? Because right then they're two on one, right? Two on one. Doesn't matter if it's a thousand soldiers, a million soldiers, or two soldiers. Okay? They're two on one. They beat this army, and now they turn. Again. He moves over here. Now they're two on one. These are still fighting here, right? But now it's three on one. And now they beat this group because three to one. And now they surround this guy. And now it's four on one. And they swallow up an army. This is called something you've probably heard of called divide and conquer. Okay? The point of this tactic, and you could say, well, that's just on paper. It has worked in hundreds and hundreds of battles. If they can divide the front of the army make a hole in it, they begin to fight on two sides, and they beat them. Every time. It happened in the Revolutionary War. It happened at a place called Fort Ticonderoga. It happened, uh, George Washington used the tactics and learned them in Valley Forge, okay? He learned them before then, but learned to set his armies up and do that those army tactics have worked for 
different armies forever and ever and ever. Now think about this. What if Satan tried to do this to the church? Remember we learned about unity, right? Our army is strong because of our focus with love and we are esteeming others better than ourselves. And so if Satan can divide our army in half or split it somehow, are we as strong? Take the front out and we become weak. You divide us and then we begin to be conquered. All right? So how is that relevant to today? Well, you can look at any place where the places I mentioned, okay, the world in general, dividing it up, well, that's not hard, right, already, countries, you want to divide a country, if there are a bunch of people out there that believe in God, and they can be divided over an issue that's not very important, or take a church, and that church is divided over an issue that's not very important, or a family divided over an issue that really doesn't matter. Most things that people hold grudges for for long, long periods of time are really little insignificant things. I have heard of churches battling over hymn books, dividing. So if Satan would like us split up, and we're willing to do so over the color of the carpet or a hymn book, or that was my money in that account and it shouldn't have been used for that, or this was, you're a member and I'm not, or you're better than me, or any issue, even outside the church, if he can divide us, what happens to us? We weaken every time happens to us, we weaken. It puts us in a place to lose every time. I think in the last 18 months, we have seen issues arise all around coronavirus, all around should we be doing this, shouldn't we be doing this, should we be doing these things and that thing, should we be together, should this and that. Just think of this. What if Satan could divide a church or a community of Christians or even more so a whole state or a whole nation over something that has nothing to do with love? If we forgot about treating others better than ourselves and we forgot about the love behind why we're doing it, why we're here, if we forgot all that and we said, you couldn't possibly think that way. You're wrong. I'm leaving. All right? When we start to think that way, we weaken the army. Right? And he gets, penetrates right in the middle and divide and conquer. All right? It is interesting to think about and much more interesting Scary to know how willing we as Christians are to just say, I'm going to fight over the color of that carpet. I'm leaving that place if I do that. Or I'm not going to do this anymore. Or I don't believe in God anymore if that person told me a lie somewhere. We let any little issue get in. We let issues in our family get in. We let issues divide us. And you know what? Most of the time, they're pretty so this is not to say that there aren't real issues out there. I'm not talking about beliefs and doctrines. There are things that are important. There are things that, are, that God says do the right thing. Follow the truth. But if we're talking of dividing over some little issue that really doesn't matter and isn't even necessarily even talked about in the Bible, if we're dividing over that, we give Satan an easy place to break through divide and conquer. And we need to keep that front strong as a Christian church. And I don't just mean this one here. I mean throughout the nation and throughout the world. Have strength as a Christian church. When 
God looks down on his Christian church, he doesn't look down on just East Shelby. He looks down on the world. He says, that's my army across the world. He looks and he says, run by love. Esteem others better than themselves. Do that. Fight for it. And keep that front solid. Don't let division conquer us. All right? That's the battle technique that we're talking about tonight. We'll do something else next couple of weeks. And I thank you very much. Have a good day.